right, welcome back to Range Anxiety. Monday session, not a Sunday session. Bit of Austin Powers theme to lead us into today's topic. Yep, 30 years, and we're going back the whole 30 years this time of automotive tuning experience in 30 minutes. It actually feels like 30 seconds when you're doing it. It's Easter long weekend, and it's been a good break from work because it's been damn busy and i'm sitting there listen to this there are guys out of motorbikes in the hills today just going crazy all trying to kill themselves and they'll probably succeed easter road tolls being being what they are but you know it's been a busy time it's been busy for cars I actually went to the football on the friday night thank you to my fantastic friends at zarella wines free plug great people and then saturday i uh, got invited out to a porsche function at the bend you know, I'm a bit of a cynic when it comes to 911s, especially old ones. But my good friend Kevin Westblade from Process West was there. Uh, he'd come down from New South Wales in his magnificent, only word to describe it, GT2 RS. If you're going to buy a Porsche, you might as well buy the million dollar one, right? What a weapon. And, you know, he, he didn't even know the track very well he'd been there for a sighter kind of thing once before and bang he's on the pace he's, he's essentially got, well he's gone faster than anyone i know in a road car straight up and that includes you julian newton he was faster than your amg yes sir and the first time he was there so proof there is that you know obviously kevin can drive pretty good but the real story is that money does indeed buy happiness yeah, bus fast lap times, and yeah, he did a brilliant job. And then hopped in the thing, right, after driving there flat out for two days around the racetrack, screwing a new set of Cup R tyres, jumped in it and drove straight to Melbourne, another like 400 miles down the road, and uh, valeted at the casino for a couple of nights. Listen to this, I'm sitting amongst a, a bunch of motorbikes now, and it's quite topical. The reason I sort of stayed while they were hanging around was because a lot of them are English, uh, there's a triumph about to start. Listen to that sort of noise. I think that one's a Korean banger of some sort. Yeah, but the others are Trumpies. And that brings us into today's topic, right? Here comes the Trumpy now. Listen to this. Bub, 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 bub. There it goes. It runs and it's English. And that's today's topic. Today's topic is about pommy cars. I was going to call it Soap Dodger this episode, but I thought some of my English listeners might get a little upset with me. Maybe not. Maybe they'll love it. I know the boys have turned their bikes off now. You see, when you're as old as I am, people in their 20s and 30s and even, well, I suppose, early 40s wouldn't understand what it's like to grow up around English cars. You see, that's pretty much all we had back then. Um, there was, yeah, were Holdens. If you had, you know, a little bit of money, but as a 16, 17-year-old, you didn't. Um, so you basically get got the left over pommy shit and you know the poms made some terrible cars listen to this here we go that one's uh triumph of some sort here comes another one and these and here comes the last of the triumphs and this is probably the last time you'll hear an english device run on this show they were infernal heaps of shit old pommy cars i don't care what anybody says let's run through some of them all right let's start with the very worst what about the uh hillman hunter yeah, they actually did a sports version of it called the Hillman Hustler GT. And I remember it coming out in crazy purples and oranges and lime greens. You know, they were trying to, you know, I oh, forget the saying, but feed caviar to a pig there. The car was just shocking. Actually, probably taking the crown from it 
the very, very worst was the Morris Marina. And again, it was a horribly sprung lever arm suspension, a oh, heap of shit of the highest caliber, poorly built, ugly, slow. But they put, I do believe they put the big Leyland Princess six cylinder in the front of it for the six cylinder models to take on the Aussie Tiranas. And yeah, there was a guy I know that went by the name of Putz, I reckon, that had one that used to be able to make the things do an on-the-brake burnout till it would pop tyres and still built still belts everywhere. The Morris Marina was indeed a bit of a weapon. Just don't try and stop, turn into a corner, or go above about 100 k's an hour, or you were dead. Uh, let's look at some other horrible things. Basically anything with the Morris badge. It'd be cruel. That'd make some cars that were okay, but we'll get to that in a minute. Morris 1100s. What about the Morris Gonad? The Morris Nomad 1500, when the Poms tried to do an overhead cam sort of setup. Hell's bells. What a terrible thing. I remember riding in one. My, my dad obviously disliked my mum enough at one stage during their marriage that he bought her like a near new Morris Nomad. And I remember mum unceremoniously was driving it down one of the main roads along the shorefront in Adelaide one day and went over like an exposed manhole that was sticking up proud of the road wiped the sump off it because we were little kids in the back bench seat me and my brothers all our faces went into the back of the front bench and we had split lips and missing teeth and mum decided to drive it home without you know emptying the contents of the sump on the road yeah, a couple of miles a few k's and yeah promptly screwed the thing it was never quite the same after that the old gonad but oh, ugly, filthy thing they were. And you couldn't drive it if it was over about 25 degrees C because the things would just overheat and cook. Speaking of overheating and cooking, what about the biggest disaster of them all? The Triumph Stag. Oh, two Dolomite motors put into a V to make, I think it was a three litre V8. And yet my daddy was a sucker for punishment. He had one of those when they were new too. And I reckon someone, about the first week he owned it, someone ran a, a red light in an EH hold and ploughed into the stupid thing, wiped half the front and side off it, and it sat in the crash repairs for about a year down at Dave Potter Motors there in Brighton because no one could get parts for them because no one had pranked it before. And and it was quite good because when it got run into, it was just coming into summer. And again, if the sun was out, you could not, under any circumstances drive a Triumph Stag because they would just cook and overheat. So, you know, the big conversion for them later on in their lives was to put a um, Range Rover V8 or a Buick V8 alloy three and a half litre thing into them, which made them a little bit better, but not much. They were still an infernal heap of shit. And the good news is because you can only drive them six months of the year, the rear end actually didn't fall out of them on the road what it used, you know, they, they were very good at doing that. The, the things were just a rubbish, rubbish car. And again, I'm sorry if the truth offends you, but it will also set you free. I was supposed to start with the worst, but I'm getting worse and worse now. What about the Poms really struggled with sports cars? What the Poms were good at doing is taking a garden variety car and turn it into a sports car. But okay, let's have a look at, say, for example, the Jaguar XJS. Now, there are all sorts of diehard Jaguar fans that have been listening to this epic car. Some of my old stupid mates, and they're stupid because they like Jags. There was nothing good about any of them. And yet, my dad owned a Jag Mark II. Oh, yeah, 3.8S. And yeah, he used to drag 
his dad, who had RX-2s, RX-3s and RX-4s, brand new at the time. Yeah, he fought in World War II against the Japs, as they called them. They went out and proceeded to buy all of their cars. And the RX-2s and RX-3s and RX-4s could only get walked by the Shagadelic Shaguar above about 200 kilometres an hour, 120 mile an hour. Other than that, they were level pegging. The little wankle chook cooker could keep up with the big jag. What about some of the things that used to go wrong with them? Like everything. Let's start from the front and go to the rear. Um, stuff like when the cylinder heads would go, or the gad gaskets would go on them, you'd have to hang, I think it was the V12s, all these fabled stories where you'd have to hang the motor from the ceiling by the cylinder heads to try and set them free from the engine because they would just weld themselves on. They were such poorly made buckets of shit with no design at all. And, you know, I can tell there are people there almost trying to cut their wrist now that loved C-types and D-types. And, yes, Jaguar could do some beautiful cars. Um, and the E-type is quite well known as being a beautiful car. But did you know it was actually fashioned after a penis? That is right. The male appendage formed the basis of the Jaguar E-type's design. And it is quite timeless, but let's face it, you know, Jaguar owners do, as a rule, like a good dicking. So, of course, they find the E-type shape attractive. Would I go out and spend $200,000 on one? Hell no! God, you'd have to be mental, wouldn't you? Nice-looking car. And again, I think my dad wanted to buy one of those, but it just fell through on him. And it was a chocolate brown V12 convertible. That was a Concours car. I couldn't imagine more actual punishment being leveraged into one chassis than into that actual combination. Speaking of which, I had a friend that was restoring a Mark II the other day. My old friend, Lancelot, you'd remember him off the podcast about building sports cars and rotors. Well, he was restoring a Mark II. Now, things would try and kill you, Jaguar Mark II, even when they were sitting there. He was restoring a Mark II, and he, he had the head trimming out of it, and all the bows that held the uh, headlining up were corroded. So he thought he'd give them a rub back with the wire wheel. You know, just a bit of a Dremel job on them, and paint them and put them back in, you know, thorough guy that he is. Well, he ended up in hospital for, like, oh, very ill for a few days with cadmium poisoning because Jaguar decided to coat the things in cadmium should they rust. Forget about the rest of the bodies, which are, you know, holier than Swiss cheese. They decided to cad plate the roof bows. And yeah, if you ever try and fix them, they will kill you. So yeah, not a big fan of the old Jags. I think some of them were raced quite successfully, like the Mark IIs in um, Australian touring car racing. And of course, who could forget was at Bathurst in 1985 when TWR, Jaguar factory team with Tom Walpenshaw and Johnny Goss and all those boys came out and spanked everyone at the Bathurst 1000 in XJSs. Yeah, that's right. They did because they were up against, they were a factory up against a bunch of local yokels. Let's face it, every time a pommy factory has come to the mountain even with the biggest piles of shit known to mankind, such as the XJS, Group A, I think they were, they Group C, no, 85, oh, yeah, it would have been Group C touring cars. They've won. Like, even then, they tried to beat themselves with stu stupid things. I think Walkinshaw's car ended up, he ended up nudging someone and had glass headlights, and they broke, and it sucked it in the inlet and stuffed the motor in that one. And I think Johnny Goss, did he win it? 
I think Johnny Goss did win it with a broken seat mount. Well, the seat just ripped out of the floor, but he still managed to win it because they were hand-built factory V12 touring cars up against stuff that had come out of Birdie Street. So, you know, like the, the Holden offering. So, yeah, pretty much every time the Palms are bought a works team to Australia, even though their cars are insufferable, they've won. So were all Pommy cars piles of shit? Mainly. Yeah, mainly, in my opinion. Unreliable, terrible electrics, ECUs that never worked when they tried to fuel inject them, carburetors that were borderline primeval rubbish like the SUs. And the first thing you did, this is how bad they were, the first thing you did if you wanted to make one go is you ripped off the bloody SU carburetor and put a, a Weber carburetor, DCOE or set of, on the engines to make them go. So you replaced Pommy with Italian to make an improvement. Well, the Poms did make some better cars. I mean, they were, you know, Lotus, terribly unreliable, fragile, light, stupid things, but iconic and fast, I suppose. And, you know, we're forgetting about the Ford Escorts and the RS and the Mexico and the twin cams and the, all of that sort of stuff. You know, again, an iconic car, but mainly shit. But this is what the Poms were good at, right? They were good at taking like a base repmobile, as I would call them, and hotting it up to make it something. But, you know, the RS1800s and 2000s were, were nothing much from a technical point of view compared to an Alfa Romeo over the era. They were nothing. You know, they had primeval engines, shithouse live axle suspension, no brakes at all to speak of, looked like a refrigerator on wheels. They were an average car at best, but they were highly developed by the factory to do things they should never have done. And that's why they were so bloody successful, because the factory just kept pouring more and more money into them to make these things faster, hiring the best drivers, the best engineers to develop them. Whereas the Italians that all sit back with their macchiato talking about, you know, <laughs> Campari and things like that, you know, commendatori. So it was just different attitudes that make these cars better. But was there one that was a real standout? Yep, there was. There was one Stand out. Listen to this. This is an air brake coming down the hill. Do you like that? That's this thing trying not to cook its brakes. The old Jake brake, this truck using the compression of the engine. Oh, and it's gone. That's a bit of a shame. There was one standout car, and that, of course, the best Pommy car ever made was designed by a Greek. Alec Isagonis and the Mini. Yeah, that's right. Minis were part of my life growing up. My brothers had, my brother had them, my brothers, my brother, my oldest brother, Paul, built superb examples of them. His best mate and my good mate at the time, Mark Tilbrook, from Tilbrook Mini Specialist, it was at the time, had the fastest minis and monks you've ever seen. I've been through a couple of them and had them, but the mini was something out of left field. It wasn't just some big long pile of crap with a recycled engine in it. And, you know, it was a whole new design. And I remember, well, seeing, I was too young for the release of these things. I remember seeing at the time, they would just drive these things along on a wet, it was an advertising ploy, a wet tarmac, and just flick the steering wheel full lock at full noise, and they wouldn't roll. They would just spin on their own square little space and just go spinning down the road, which is quite unusual for a car back then. It's still quite unusual if you drive a TJ Wrangler to be able to turn the wheel sharply and not end up on your lid. But the Mini was fantastic like that. The brick, as it was affectionately called, had a wheel on each corner, 
had hydroelastic suspension floats on fluid, if you're old enough to remember those big uh, fluid drop stickers on the back of the bloody things. Wheel on each corner, it had a transverse engine and gearbox in it. it and the 850 with the sliding windows, the very first of them had door pockets big enough to fit a, fit a bottle of scotch in, which was quite an amazing um, thing. Now, minis were never much of a thing in 850, guys. But of course, Poms being Poms and Works Teams being Works Teams, Cooper got involved and John Cooper developed the Mini Cooper. And there were very many editions of the Mini Coopers. The Mini Cooper Mark 1, Mark 2, Mini Cooper S, Mark 1, Mark 2, and I think Mark 3. Then there was a Leyland 1275 GT after the Poms really managed to screw the design and put the refrigerator front on it so it looked like ugly, like an Escort. Um, but these things were bloody fast. And unlike sticker kits of today, they actually had some real engineering going to them. Like, I think they started out as a 997, the first Mini Cooper. Now, Mini Heads pulled me up if I'm wrong, but I do remember a little bit of it. 997, 998, 1071, and then 1275 with the four engine capacities. And I remember that, that the best of them, the 1275 Cooper S Mark II and possibly Mark III and possibly 1275 GT, were capable of the metric tonne flat out in fourth gear. They could do 100 mile an hour with their twin one and a quarter inch SUs, their ported heads, their, you know, overboard engines. And they had uh, long range twin fuel tanks in them. They only had a little normal tank in the side of them normally, but they had twin filler caps and a host of other mods. These were bespoke. They had different um, uh, spot welds in the chassis. They were stronger torsionally. There were all sorts of things. And so lunatics like my brother and his mates would get out and modify them even further take them out to 1310 and i don't know 1370 i forget what it was and put like you know big 648 cams in them long center branch um inlet manifolds with 45 dcoe weavers uh hanging off them and they you'd have to cut into the back of the speedo head which is in the middle of the dash and on diesel and you know gear change the, the standoff all the burning fuel in the inlets would come out the carby trumpets and light the back of the speedo up orange. I remember all that stuff. These things had some grunt. Well, it seemed they had some grunt. They used to take these things. I think standard, they rev to about 6,000 RPM. They used to build them and rev them to 82, 8,300 RPM. They were bloody lunatics. And did they break? Shit, yeah. They broke all the bloody time. Mark Tilbrook, my mate, was responsible for making the second-hand prices of Cooper S gearboxes, at least in this state, go through the roof. He smashed that many of them in his minis and his moak that he had, which was like a garden shed version of a mini open-topped. He used to go through about one a week. And when the engine would shit itself, which didn't really a lot with those boys, they built a pretty good tidy engine, uh, stuff from the engine would drop through the gearbox and stuff through the gearbox would go through the engine. So he used a common lubrication system, which seemed like a good idea at the time but was none too bloody bright. So I think it was 1966 that the BMC works team brought a whole heap of the things over, you know, Paddy Hopkirk and all those famous names over to Bathurst. And they got like, you know, five cars or something like that in the top 10. They won it. They won two and fought it or something like that. I don't think they won two, three it, but they won the Bathurst 1000 up against all of our local hardware in 66, it was just before the days of, you know, the big 327 Monaros and stuff. So they had a bit more of a chance, but they won. So 
That was proof that you could bring anything to Bathurst and win it if you're a factory team, particularly a pommy one. But I fell in love with the minis when I was growing up, and I, I actually had one that was an ex-Polish pursuit car, not the blue one I've spoken about before, 998, that Mark Tilbrook lovingly painted the engine blue with a pink head for me, because I said it as a joke, and then I delivered it. But my brother restored a Snowy Mountains, Kuma, I think it was, 1275 GT, a little bit of rust than it had been in the snow, but he was very handy and restored it really, really well, built the engine, did the body, it was white. The only thing he did that wasn't original was painted the roof Kawasaki green. So it was white with a lime green roof. Apart from that, it was a pretty cool car. Like I said, it had books and I bought that off him and I had that for a few years and used to drive it around a little bit. And it wasn't one of my favourite cars, but there was something sort of rorty about those things. Minis, you could barrel up to a corner, but they didn't have much in the way of brakes. You know, God bless. They were the size of tobacco tins, but at least they were discs on the front. You could rush up to a corner, any old bloody corner, breathe on the brake pedal to wash off some speed, and then just jump off as you turned in, and they would oversteer. They weren't plow understeering pigs, and that made them very, very competitive at hill climbs motocarnas, any track that was tight. Like I believe they were pretty good at Winton back in the day in Victoria because the tracks were tight. And they were kind of unbeatable for a while there. And it took the big lumps with 350 cubic inch V8 stuffed in the nose of them to give the minis a good run for their money. So you see, it's not all about hatred of pommy cars. Some of them are quite near and dear to my heart, including the old Mori, the old Morris Minor 1000. What a good old thing, eh? I quite like those. Austin 7s, don't start me, don't like them. Anything with an Austin badge, apart from an Austin Cooper S, is pretty much rubbish in my opinion. Um, Cooper S Mark II would have to be, if I had one Pommy car to have as new and put away, that would be one of them. It's not the most expensive. Uh, it's not the best looking. It's not the fastest. But it was the package that changed the world. That car changed the world. E-types, D-types, C-types didn't. Leyland P76s didn't, but they were made here. Um, Hillman Hustlers, Hillman Imp GTs, none of those things changed the world. But the Mini, because of its Greek designer, it changed the world forever with its transverse layout, its front-wheel drive, its compact, its great handling. And more people should sort of take note of that. So that that's my pick of the Pommy cars. And the good news is, if you've got 50 grand, you can probably still buy one that's worth having today. Finding an original one that's not a faker shaker and not too butchered, yeah, good luck with that. You need to go to a specialist to find the right car, I would think, if you're going to pay big money for it. Minis of today, they're big, they're bulbous, they're heavy. Every time I see one on the road, there's that many different bloody models of them. Minis of today, they, I don't even know what's what. I went past seeing something the other day, a Countryman or whatever, with the barn doors on the back, would be the size of an original Ford Transit van from the same era, you know, that the Minis were sold in. I thought, this is bloody stupid. But what do you actually expect if you sell the brand to BMW? Of course, they're going to like, you know, you might have won the war, but <laughs> we're going to stuff your brand. Yeah, nah, I'm not a big fan of the new minis. You can make them go fast. Not A lot of my mates love them. Sorry, Nathan, if I've upset you or Tony. But 
get an original one. They're cool. They're cooler than cat shit. Anything's cooler than cat shit, but they're cooler than any other pommy car. So thanks for listening to this non-electrified version of Range Anxiety, this epicast. Hope it came at you. Hope it enjoyed. And I'll be back in the middle of the week.